You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I feel myself a coherent whole. All I sense and think seems simply me, unified as myself, myself. Philosophers ask deep questions about myself. What makes for personal identity? Do we perceive reality as it is or construct our own reality? Does myself actually exist, integrated, indivisible, a real thing in itself? Or is myself an illusion, an imagined consolidation of sovereign parts, but only the parts are the real things that exist? Brain scientists claim that they have evidence which philosophers cannot ignore. There are people, patients, who tragically have brain abnormalities, traumatic injuries, birth deformities, severe addictions. By observing what functions are lost when brain parts are damaged, scientists can assess how the brain functions normally. What happens to the self? What would happen to myself when brains go bad? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. How to study the brain modalities that compose myself, the subsystems of the brain, seeing, hearing, all the senses, thinking, feeling, all the cognitions. Research on animals helps, but doesn't suffice. Animal experiments yield brain mechanics and mechanisms, but not human-level perceptions and thoughts. Obviously, there's no experimenting on humans. That's why, for deciphering normal brains, decoding abnormal brains is so important. How might each kind of abnormality provide specific clues for how the normal brain works? What's the meaning of abnormal brains? I begin with a philosopher. I go to the University of London to the Institute of Philosophy to meet its director, Barry Smith. Barry, in trying to understand how our brain functions, one of the most significant sources of information that we have, often tragically, are from cases where there's brain damage, from stroke, from trauma. What are some examples uh, when brains go bad that can help us understand when brains are normal? When brains go bad or when there's brain injury or brain uh, pathology, we see one of the systems damaged and by taking out that component and seeing what happens to experience, what the experience is like with something missing, we're able to see just how much structure, just how many components go into ordinary experience. Mm. Here's a case. People with right parietal damage can be put in a very strange position of disowning one of their limbs. So the so-called alien hand syndrome is where somebody says, uh, this isn't my arm. Of course, they can feel the rest of their body as belonging to them, but they say, this isn't my arm. And if the doctor says, whose arm is it? They say, maybe it's yours, I don't know. You can prick them with a, a pin, some of these patients, and you'll say, is there pain? Yes. Whose pain is it? 
I don't know. That shows us that it's not enough just to have an experience to treat it as one of your experiences. There must be something like ownership. You have to lay claim to that experience. Not enough that it's just going on. And yet some very famous thinkers, Wittgenstein in particular, said you couldn't have an experience of pain and wonder whose pain that was. It was conceptually impossible to, to be in that position. But here we're finding patients who are actually in that position. So we think there must be something in the normal case that uh, explains or makes possible ownership of experiences, ownership of one's limbs. Prior, we would have thought that is self-evident. You don't need a brain system to have ownership. It's so obvious. Yes. So it turns out that um, uh, when we think of experiences, uh, we need to add to them ownership of those experiences. When we think of uh, feeling things in our limbs, we have to add ownership of those limbs. Not only our limbs, although that's a big part of what makes us feel that it's ourselves, but even in thought, turns out that there are strange cases of people, pathologies again, brain damaged patients, who think that they're having thoughts inserted into their minds. This is not the same thing as hearing voices. Mm. It's not happening outside. But they feel that the thoughts that are going on are being broadcast into their mind by someone else. That shows it's not enough to just have a thought, to treat it as my thought, or even to treat it as me. And again, this runs counter to a lot of philosophy. Descartes famously yeah. says, I think, therefore I am. You know, if there's thought going on, has to be me. Yeah. No, again, it looks as though, to our surprise, having a thought requires ownership of that thought. So notice that this concept of ownership goes missing in certain pathologies. But then it leads us to ask, in the normal case, what is it that explains that ownership of our own thoughts and of our own limbs? But now we might distinguish a sense of ownership from a sense of agency, because the sense of agency comes to light and can be seen to go wrong when there are other kinds of pathologies, again, brain-damaged patients sometimes have what we call anarchic hand. An anarchic hand is when uh, the arm seems to do things by itself, according to the patient. So it reaches out and grabs a glass or takes a cup, and the person says, I didn't do that. It wasn't my moving my arm. My arm seemed to move by itself. But it's still your arm. It is still your arm. And so notice you have the ownership. And notice it's still you who's the agent. You are actually acting, but what you've lost is a sense of your own agency. You're not realizing that you're the author of that movement. Now, here you think that's my limb. It's not, it's not that you're disowning the limb. It's that you're not claiming agency yeah. for moving it. Yeah. Now, there are very interesting reasons why agency seems to go missing here. Some people think that when we make a movement, uh, we're predicting not only how the arm will move, but we're predicting the sensations we'll have as a result of grasping a cup. Mm. In other words, you're expecting to feel something on the fingers. This is called the forward model, the idea that the brain is actually preparing and then making a copy of the expected outcome of those movements. Now, when you get sensations at the end of your fingers that match that copy, they cancel each other out and everything's going well. Mm. But now imagine moving your arm and now feeling sensations and movements you didn't expect because you didn't make the copy. Oh. You now get feelings at the end of your fingers that surprise you, so you say, I didn't do that, it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. So the sense of agency and the sense of ownership 
collaborate as parts of our bodily awareness mm. that make up a sense of self. What about language that we think is a unified concept? There are so many different modules and in different pathologies and injuries, different little segments of language can be lost. Language is made up of many, many, many different systems. And again, through brain pathology, usually stroke, you can see a breakdown in some parts of that system. So sometimes there are people who uh, speak perfectly fluently, but of course what they're, they're actually producing is, is nonsense speech, but not to them, it sounds normal. Other people can only produce telegraphic speech. You can have people who end up just producing one or two word utterances to try and convey what they mean. They've lost the syntactic ability to organize the units into larger parts. But then there are people who lose the ability to hear particular sounds as words. That's very strange. You would be hearing the noises I'm making now and it would sound almost like a foreign language. And again, there are people who cannot, when reading words, cannot pronounce some of the words because uh, they've lost the ability either to do letter-by-letter -letter composition or they've lost the ability to recognize whole words. So what this shows is that language has all these very, very specific modules that together integrate into our concept of language. Yes, and they're giving us meaning, they're giving us sound, they're giving us sequence and structure. But if you ask how many bits of the brain are involved in using speech in the way we are now, probably at least 50 areas are involved. And so when you have stroke, you can have very specific breakdown. And actually that gives you a clue as to how many separate systems are collaborating to make what seems like a unified whole. No one is immune. I am not immune. An injury, stroke, or tumor to specific brain regions and my world would change radically. Reality wouldn't change, of course, but my perception of reality would differ dramatically. What I'd thought was a singular, smooth, indivisible function, such as sense of body or fluency of language, would be revealed as multiple, discrete, divisible functions. Would fragmented faculties mean a fragmented self? Frankly, I'm a bit terrified. Worse, could our apparent sense of mental integration, indeed our entire sense of robust self, be a kind of grand illusion? One way to investigate illusion is to research visual perception. I ask an expert, professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine, Donald Hoffman. If you have damage to the brain in an area back here, area V4, um, that you can see on the left hemisphere of the brain, you can lose all of your color perception in the right visual field. So everything from where you're looking to the right is your right visual field. And you can have a situation called hemiachromatopsia. Wow. <laughs> in which um, you have normal colors in the left visual field, but starting at the midline and to the right, everything is shades of gray. So if I have an apple, it's bright red over here. Now the left half is red, but the right half is gray and then now the whole apple is gray. And so that suggests to us that the, the left hemisphere is somehow responsible for constructing our experience of the right visual world. So the left hemisphere is creating our conscious experience of the right half of the visual world. And in particular, this particular area of the brain, some would say, this area V4 in the left hemisphere, is responsible for constructing the conscious color experiences in the right mm. visual field, but not the left. 
Well, one thing this suggests is that color, which we think is, is embedded in the real world, is a brown chair and green and grass. I mean, that, that color is really a product of what I'm creating. It, it really is a product of what you're creating. If you asked a physicist what are the properties of light, they'd say, you know, frequency, wavelength, polarization, mm. but they wouldn't say color. Right. And there is, in fact, not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the frequencies of light and the colors we experience. It's far more complicated than that. So color really is a contribution that we make. Then you can also do this with a magnet. So you can take a normal person, put a magnet over this area of the brain. And if you inhibit it, you can shut off the color experience in the right visual world. And fortunately, when you pull the magnet away, it comes back. Or you can uh, create what are called color phosphenes. You can stimulate the area and create false colors in the right visual world. So there clearly are neural correlates of consciousness going on here, right? This area of the brain is highly correlated with color experience in the other visual, the, the opposite visual field. We have similar stuff with motion perception. An uh, area called MT or V5 on the left hemisphere seems to be involved in creating motion perception in the right part of the visual world. So if you get a stroke, and there was an unfortunate woman who got a stroke that apparently took out this area in both wow. sides of the brain at once. Mm, that's unusual. And so she couldn't see any motion at all. What does that mean? What did she see? So it was like being at a disco with a strobe light, and you see people like this and like this oh. and so forth, but she couldn't actually see the movement in between. She couldn't walk across the street because the cars were way down the street, and then all of a sudden they were right there. And we think that motion is an intrinsic property of objects, yeah. but it really is a property that we construct. I mean, John Locke, the philosopher, said that motion was a primary property, that it, you know, it was not due to our perceptions. It was inherent in the object itself. Right. So I think John Locke would have been very pleased to learn that he was wrong on this, yeah, that this right. is a very, you know, we're creating not only the colors, which he did admit were what he called secondary properties, but, but that we're also creating the motions, which he thought and said were primary properties. Here's an example where a great philosopher really has great thought about it, but he can't make progress without neuroscience. This is what has given neuroscience the confidence, some would say the hubris, of saying that neuroscience can resolve what consciousness is, because it has been so successful in resolving what some of these elements of consciousness are. I agree. It's given them a lot of confidence. and. They, they ha should have some confidence because these correlates are, are very, very strong. But the correlates don't imply causation. That's the standard thing. Just because everybody shows up at the train station and then a train comes doesn't mean that they cause the train to come. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive, bizarre. But what we perceive to be a simple unitary sense, vision, is in reality the composite of diverse and divisible modules. And only when brains go bad, usually through injury, can we discern such internal complexity and subtlety. I'm fortunate that my mother is almost 100 years old, yet I witness the poignant progression of her age-related dementia. Although not the ravages of Alzheimer's, her neurological deterioration affects memory and discernment. She now has difficulty distinguishing her living daughter from her deceased sisters. Yet a robust sense of self proudly remains. What can dementia reveal about the relationship between states of the brain and states of the mind? I visit an expert on Alzheimer's the British neuroscientist and writer, Susan Greenfield. 
Susan, most people have the experience when their parents get older, um, sometimes their mental states deteriorate and in, in, in some situations it even degenerates terribly with Alzheimer's. We know in cases of dementia that the, the, the people, the elderly, begin to act like children. Yeah. Is there a deep neurophysiological reason why we make that analogy? Yeah, I, I think um, this actually relates to my own view of what the mind is. Um, when you think about it, dementia is a loss of mind, it's an absence of mind, it's a parting of mind. We think of mind, or I think of mind, as the growth of the connections between brain cells that personalises your brain as you're growing. Even if you're a clone, an identical twin, you're going to have a unique configuration of brain cell connections because they're driven and strengthened and shaped and updated right. by your ongoing dialogue right, with what right, your experiences. Right. So you can imagine, and you can actually see in, in certain pictures, brain cells growing these lovely branches. We call them dendrites. Mm -hmm. like after tree, Greek, after right. the Greek for tree, yes, yeah. those are these branches. And you see these branches growing and growing, and that characterises the growth of brain after birth. But then what can happen in dementia is that these branches are pruned back. Now, these branches enable you to make connections because you have a greater surface area. It follows, therefore, if these are pruned back, if these atrophy, if they're withering, those connections will no longer function. So, therefore, your brain will become slowly, slowly, progressively more and more like that of a child, where when you think of a very small infant, a two or three-year-old infant, if someone came in dressed in a ghost costume, they might be very frightened by that because they wouldn't have the checks and balances, they wouldn't have the understanding, the prior experience for looking beyond the face value to understanding it was mm -hmm. just a silly grown-up mm -hmm. dressed up as a ghost. Sadly, dementia patients are the same. That is to say they don't have any more the conceptual framework, the infrastructure, the checks and balances for understanding that something that might be novel or frightening is just a... Because they've lost all the connections that represented those more sophisticated right. ways of so understanding. So slowly, slowly, a dementing person will actually become more and more like a small child. And like a small child, they'll be confused and disorientated. They won't understand things. And this is why, for the carers, in a sense, I think after a certain stage, it's more distressing than for the patient because the patient is almost like a small child again. As long as they have the sun on their face and they have nice taste in their mouth and they're warm and comfortable and nothing novel or frightening is happening, they would be content or have well-being. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the carer, whilst a disease like um, cancer or heart disease or cause severe diseases, they're life-threatening diseases, you're still the person that you were. Whereas for carers... With dementia patients, they will often go through the stages of bereavement, even though the person's still breathing, because they are experiencing the sense of loss. Dementia is heartbreaking, but it demonstrates unambiguously the direct relationship between mind and brain. The richer the connections among brain cells, the richer the thought. Such correlations are clues. How else to correlate the physical state of a human brain with the cognitive output of a human mind. Addictions, such as to drugs, are said to cause physical changes in brains. We know how destructive behaviors can seem unstoppable, but what's going on in the brain to make it so? I ask an expert on addiction, neuropharmacologist and director of the Brain Research Institute at UCLA, Christopher Evans. Chris, in trying to understand how the brain works, addiction is a very powerful tool. Two directions. One, what does addiction tell us about the way the normal brain functions, and how can we understand the process of addiction so that we can better help people in that process? It really started with uh, Jim Olds at UCLA. 
And his experiments were with rats, and he was doing stimulation in, in certain areas of the brain. And he noticed that um, when he stimulated certain areas, the rats really liked it. They kept on coming back to the area where they were stimulated. So he developed this self-stimulation paradigm where he had a lever in, in the cage and he would um, implant electrodes into the brain, into certain areas of the brain. And every time the rat hit the lever, they would get a stimulation in this area of the brain. They would be pumping this lever like 2,000 times an hour. Mm. They were completely depend you know they, they really wanted to press this lever they do anything to press this lever they go across electrical, you know, electrical grids. grids and they the Female mothers would leave their children you know, and then and the males would leave the females in heat yes you've got it <laughs> they, they do anything to get this stimulation right. and when i tell people that it drums home that there are some areas in the brain which if you stimulate you'll do anything to get stimulation there and drugs can do the same thing what jim Olds did is he went back and he blocked certain pathways in the brain which have the neurotransmitter dopamine. Okay. Dopamine, it seems, has a key role in the reward system. We know that almost every drug of abuse stimulates the release of dopamine or increases dopamine in the, in the synapse. So what cocaine does is it increases the dopamine in the synapse by blocking the reuptake of dopamine. Amphetamine works in a slightly different way. It also increases the dopamine in the synapse, but it causes a release of, of, of dopamine from the dopaminergic neurons. Dopamine release also occurs with, with pain. It really is a way of telling the brain to take note. Mm. There's something going on which is really important. Mm. Okay, so now that we understand that's how the addiction is occurring, obviously that's a system that's in place. It's in place through evolution, and evolution didn't know about heroin. So how come it works? Why is the system that developed from evolution so susceptible to these these kinds of, uh, of drugs or addictive behaviors? And obviously, the, the, the brain didn't didn't um, develop to respond to heroin. And there's clearly um, substances in the brain which, which mimic the, the effects of heroin. These are called endorphins and enkephalins. This is the endogenous opioid system. Um, and with, with cannabinoids, the, you know, obviously marijuana, the, the brain wasn't developed to work with uh, marijuana and there's endogenous cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. So we have these things in our brain that are similar yeah. Uh, endorphins, uh, cannabinoids, different... Now, why are they there? What are they doing normally? They're, they're regulating our reward functions. We need these. They're, 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 they're important yeah. for our drive. Without this reward system, we'd be kind of lost. We'd be dithering around right. not we, knowing what we, we want. We need, we wouldn't reproduce. That's right. right. That's right. Wouldn't have and, any fun. No, it's, 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 a, it's an incredibly important system. Right. It's, it's part of our motivation, part of our drive, uh, you know, our, our drive to live. Okay. There's been a number of experiments where they've actually tried to stop addiction by um, suppressing this reward system. So um, there's, there's, there's a drug which was used to block cannabinoid receptors, the, the receptors which bind to marijuana, the active ingredient of marijuana. And this drug is uh, suicidal. Hmm. You know, that, that, that was why it was never put on the market, oh, because oh. It, it, it depressed these, this, this reward system to an extent. Where that people just didn't want to live anymore without those rewards. Yeah. The important thing about dr drug abuse is not 
only the fact that you, you take the drug, but when you take the drug a lot, a lot, you have adaptations in the brain which then counteract the effects. It, it kind of, there's a homeostasis which occurs in, in, the, in the brain circuits. And then when you go off the drug, that's when you have the problems right. because you have the opposite effects than you get with the drug. You know, really, these, the, the understanding the, the drugs of abuse have really given us keys to how the brain works. I, I can tell you that we would never have understood the endogenous opiate system if there wasn't opium sure. or uh, and morphine. We, we would never have known it was there. Mm. So what about those deep questions that philosophers ask about the self? How do we maintain personal identity? Do we perceive reality or construct it? Now brain science offers evidence that philosophers must absorb. What we learn when brains go bad must inform all true theories about the unity of the self, the essence of personal identity, and how our brains construct reality. How we sense, how we think, how we feel are not indivisible wholes. Those bizarre syndromes of brain abnormalities, the fragmentations of perception and cognition cannot be denied. To me, a fragmented self is terrifying. Like it or not, I'm now sure it is illusion to suppose that the apparent unity of my self-image is any more real than, say, the apparent unity of my iPhone. My mental self, like my iPhone, is comprised of diverse components and sub-assemblies. But here's what I'm not sure about. What explains my sense of unity? And after accounting for all the brain subsystems, does anything remain? What of the self is closer to truth? To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.